<coughs> we come to the last four chapters of Ezra. I haven't put up any outline of Ezra on the board because it really is there. The first return under the rubble is the first six chapters of Ezra. And the second return under Ezra is covered from Ezra chapter 7 to chapter 10. That is to do with moral character. And then the third return under Nehemiah is, of course, uh, the book of Nehemiah. You remember that the, if you take Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah together, as they were originally uh, intended to be, we have come to the last great section of the outline of these uh, four books. One or two Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. That was the recovery of the house of God and the bringing in of the Christ of God. We have already dealt with the first return under Zerubbabel, with the decree of Cyrus, and uh, we shall naturally this evening, because each return is linked with the preceding one, we shall naturally refer to it once or twice. You remember that last week we found that the real value of Ezra Nehemiah is that we have here revealed by the Holy Spirit in type and in symbol principles that are basic to recovery. That is, they are principles for the end of a dispensation. As they were then in the shadow and figure of the, of the true, uh, this was the recovery of something at the end of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament age. So they speak to us at the end of this age, they reveal to us and express to us principles of recovery, and principles which are basic to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this evening, if you turn to Ezra chapter 7, I'm not going to cover exactly what we said last week. If anyone wants to hear it, I understand there are one or two who want to hear last Friday again. I think there will be a recording probably on Monday or Wednesday of this week. So any of you who would like to hear that, we're going to arrange for that, that you can hear the, the very important first six chapters of Ezra. Those are really absolutely fundamental to Ezra and Nehemiah. Tonight we come to the second return under Ezra. And if there are one or two things I would like you straight away to note, uh, the first is this, that in the first return, under the rubble, we were dealing with the recovery of truth in practice. We were dealing with the recovery of truth in practice. Such things, for instance, as church ground, Jerusalem, the place, all the times we iterated again and again and again, the house of God cannot be built where you would choose or where you would like. There is a certain place, and this was all the more remarkable, because uh, this uh, was written after they had returned to Jerusalem. It seems a bit strange for someone in Jerusalem to keep on talking about the house of God in Jerusalem, which is in Jerusalem. The God of Israel who is in Jerusalem. He is God who is in Jerusalem. And so on. But we found, you see, that the first return reveals to us principles to do with the recovery of truth in practice. Um, that is to do with the things of God. Uh, such things as uh, church ground. Uh, such things as the cross. As being the only means by which God can produce the church on earth. The only means by which he can integrate us into the church. Can build us up into the head. So there must be, first of all, we must be on the right ground geographically. Secondly, there's got to be a real experience of the cross. That's another uh, uh, truth, truth in practice. And then we found the foundation. That's another truth in practice. Uh, this question of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation. You have the ground, you have the cross operating, and then you have a foundation laid. When you get a company of people together on the right ground, the cross starts to do its work, and then there is produced a foundation. This foundation is the life and the oneness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
once that foundation is laid in and by the Holy Spirit, you have got the first step in building the church. The foundation has was the first actual part of the building of the temple, you see. But we noticed that all these things were the recovery of truth. We also noticed, for instance, that there, there was such thing as conflict. That's a recovery of truth. Uh, if we are going to be frightened by the conflict, we'd better pack up now and uh, go off to our other places where we won't get the conflict. But it's, it's a recovery of, of, of a principle in recovery that if we're going to be in anything that is in the vanguard of recovering something for the Lord in the light of his return, then we are going to be at the heart of a terrible and at times seemingly inexplicable battle. Uh, it's no good taking it on, it's no good stopping the work because of it. We remember we saw last week how they stopped the work because they got afraid. Uh, when at last they learnt their lesson and refused to stop building but went straight on whether the king said so or not, then the king said it was all right. Uh, they learned a lesson about conflict. Now many of us, of course, we know something about conflict, and I've seen it again and again. You, someone takes, this is just a little aside, but someone takes a step. I don't know what kind of step it might be. It might be a very practical step. For some of you, it might be, some of the sisters, it might be a question to do with dress or hair. Some of the brothers, it might be a question to do with the office or something else. You take just some small step in faith, and immediately, the very step you take, something goes wrong with it. And you immediately think, well, surely, surely, if that was right, if that was right, it wouldn't go wrong. There must be something uh, queer here, you see. There uh, must be something queer. But in actual fact, all it is is the devil just trying something out to see if by conflict he can so frighten you as to make you step very smartly back. And if you can only be got to step smartly back, then he'll keep you there. For the rest of your life, you'll be smartly stepping back. Uh, there won't be any real forward. Every step forward, you'll step back again a bit later, because the devil just knows how to get you. So you see, there are all these things. Under the first return, it was a question of recovery of truth. Truth. It wasn't to do with character so much. It was to do with truth. Uh, such things that are basic. You see, I said something which evidently shocked one or two last week. I said, it doesn't matter how holy you are. If you're not on the right ground, you can't be built together. And it doesn't matter how sinful you are, if you are on the right ground, there's hope for you to be built into the church. Now, this is what I'm getting at, you see. There is a sphere, and there are certain uh, truths, there are certain truths that have got to be seen, and have got to be, you've got to obey, before there can be any outworking whatsoever, so that you can get the most godly and devout and zealous people. But if they don't see the ground, on which the church is built, and the method by which God produces the church, and the essential elements in the church, then those, that little group of godly, devout people will remain for year in and year out a group of godly people. And nothing will happen. And they will scratch their heads, and so will we, if we don't understand these things, as to why, why, why doesn't the Lord do something? See, there they are, there they are, Nothing ever happens, really happens. No one ever gets saved. There's never any uh, increase or any real, real activity. And we scratch our heads and we wonder, what's wrong with those people? You see? Well, this is just evidence, and I'm not going to mention names, but I can take you all over the country today and show you this thing working out in practice. Godly, devout people together, and yet they just cannot understand why isn't the Lord committing himself to us? Why isn't the Lord going? Uh, why isn't the Lord doing something? Here we have the word and all the rest of it, you see. Well, the whole point is, there is a recovery of truths. And those truths have got to be seen, and then they've got to become practical in our working. Once you get that, you get the start. Now we come to the second return under Ezra. And in the second return, it's altogether different. In these whole four chapters, you do not get a single mention of rebuilding anything. Huh? The, the foundation, uh, the uh, ground, 
All this is not mentioned. Uh, of course, uh, that all belongs to the first return, and later to the third return. But now we have come to something which is absolutely essential. We have come to um, now to the point where we have got to understand that the next great uh, thing in, in Ezra Nehemiah that the Holy Spirit reveals to us is what we would call inward spiritual character or moral character. That's the next thing that we find. Uh, in this uh, second return, uh, really, everything deals with the recovery of an inward character. Now, you must mark their order, everyone. You must mark the order. In evangelical Christendom today, it is the recovery of an inward character first, and then you build the church. But the Holy Spirit has put it the other way round. He's put it the other way round. And it's just because evangelical Christendom has followed what is seemingly logical and rational that it's in such a hopeless mess. If we could only get every newly born believer, the moment they're saved, to see this question of ground and to see this question of the church, then we could preach and preach and preach and minister and minister and minister and talk and talk and talk about inward character and everything would be safe. Because all we would say would build them up into what God is doing. See? But otherwise, you go on and on the other, and in the end you end up in pure Christian individualism, which is the curse and the blight of Christianity today. That's all. So, you see, we are really at a point of tremendous importance, uh, really, in the Old Testament. We have come to the second great return under Ezra, and now we find everything, everything, is to do with moral character. Everything that we're in, in this second return is not dealing with things, it's dealing with people. Everything. It's all people now. Not walls, not uh, foundations, not ground, not stones, nothing else like that now anymore. It's all people, people, people. What are the people's, what is the people's attitude? What is the people's reaction? What is the leader's attitude? What are the elders' attitude to this? The chief men, the rulers, what are their attitude? What is their reaction to the law? What is Ezra's reaction? What is his attitude? The whole of this part, these four chapters, is to do with the inward character which gives rise to an attitude and to reactions. Now that's very true. You betray your character, I betray my character by my attitude to things and by my reaction to things. Uh, very quickly we, we react and we can't help ourselves. But if only we knew it, we are betraying a character. You see? It's amazing. It's amazing, for instance, how some people will take suffering. And we all say sometimes, even of a person in the world, they've got character. Other people just go to pieces. They're just absolutely hopeless. You can't do anything with them. Now, ladies' arms, head, they're all over different places, sort of thing. You've got to spend your time sort of bringing them together. And somehow, uh, it's a wearing business. Other people, they, they just react in the most amazing way. And we say, well, the person's got character because of the way they can take it. Do you see? Uh, our attitude and our uh, reactions reveal character. And this book is a book of attitudes, uh, these chapters, these four chapters, are chapters of attitudes and reactions all the way through. It is simply a question of uh, character, moral character. Uh, it's, it's very interesting that the Holy Spirit focuses uh, in this uh, second return on one major matter. And now this is the heart of this, of these four chapters. The Holy Spirit focuses upon one major matter. This major matter is mixed marriage. Uh, it's as if the Holy Spirit has selected, of course there are other, there are other uh, events, related in these four chapters, but the main matter is this question of marriage. Marriage with aliens, with, with those who are uh, foreigners, outside of the people of God. Now, this straight away uh, really, in a sense, reveals the heart of, of the matter, as we shall see. 
that's why the Holy Spirit attaches such a great importance and seemingly such severe measures uh, to this whole question of mixed marriages. When we come to read it, I think some of us will be just a little shocked at the way Ezra demanded uh, uncompromisingly that certain measures be taken. Many of us uh, tend to think of the Old Testament as the Old Testament and leave it like that. But I think if we were to wake up and think of it happening in our day, we would realise what a, a problem it would have created. Uh, so there are those uh, preliminary things about these four chapters. Uh, one other thing I would like also to point out too, we shall be dealing with it later, Lord willing, another evening. Um, we ought to mark or to note that between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is a period of something like 60 years, more or less, approximately. Um, this period is passed over in virtual silence. In fact, as far as Ezra Nehemiah is concerned, it is in complete silence. But this is the period when Queen Esther reigned as Queen of Persia. So it is in between, you've got the inset of the book of Esther, in between Ezra chapter 6, and Ezra chapter 7. Now if we turn to Ezra 7, uh, we'll look a little more closely at these chapters. Uh, they are divided into two. Uh, there's chapter 7 and chapter 8, which deal with the return to uh, Jerusalem, and chapter 9 and chapter 10 deal with conditions that they found on arrival at Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, first of all, shall we just very, very briefly and quickly, because you should have read these chapters, <clears throat> just very briefly run over the contents of them and then we'll um, uh, seek to draw out some of the lessons. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, we have the return to Jerusalem described. Uh, the first ten verses of chapter 7 are just literally a, a brief resume. They cover the whole of these four chapters. Then, with verse 11 of chapter 7, we get down to the actual um, return. Uh, the first thing we find that caused the return was the decree of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, to Ezra. As far as we know, it is probable that Ezra was uh, in the government. Uh, it is very probable, and it is highly believed, believed more or less generally now by scholars, that Ezra occupied a very high position, probably in the Jewish affairs uh, department of the Persian government. We know, for instance, that the Persian government, like the Babylonian that preceded it, was a highly organized uh, empire. And they had not only a home office, but they had a foreign affairs office, and they had a deported people uh, department. It was an official that had been trained uh, in exile uh, of the nationality of each of these uh, deported peoples that represented them, worded uh, decrees and laws in a way that they could understand, and so on. And as far as we know, Ezra was probably of quite high rank in the government. This decree of Artaxerxes, this uh, letter, embodied uh, in a letter, was sent to Ezra, and this was the beginning of the second return. He was given freedom, a greater freedom in some ways than even Cyrus gave, not only to take anyone who wanted to go, but he, had an, um, he was allowed to draw upon the royal treasury to almost a remarkable sum. In actual fact, it has been estimated that he took back something like one million pounds worth of silver and gold alone. Now, this is not so strange. Some people think, oh, can that be true? But we know for a fact that Alexander the Great, when he took the Persian Empire, took 40 million pounds worth of loot uh, from the royal treasury. So it is quite feasible that he did, in actual fact, take such a large sum of money back with him. Uh, it was lavish. Absolutely lavish. And if you read the letter of Artaxerxes, you will be, I think, a little bit surprised at the way in which it is worded and also the very, very generous tone and helpful uh, nature uh, of it. Then we go from that to, of course, Ezra's reaction, which is a rather lovely little reaction embodied in the last part of chapter 7. And when we come to chapter 8, we have a register, which is so, as you know, so uh, like 
chronicles Ezra and Nehemiah, we have a genealogy and a register of all those who returned with Ezra. We've already, last week, looked at the register of those who returned with Zerubbabel. Now we have here a register of some 1,000, I think, roughly 1,300 people. Uh, or only men. Uh, the ladies aren't included in this. They are included in their husbands uh, and their children. Uh, the, the men are evidently, as it were, taken to, to be the heads of families. Um, and so really, in actual fact, the number is much greater than it would seem. We have something like about 1,300 names. And then we also have the matter of the Levites. Uh, when uh, Ezra comes to list everyone, he's very methodical, because he was a scribe, a ready scribe in the law of the Lord. When he comes down to list everything, and he, 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 the word used is he took them off uh, as he went through them. Uh, before they went, he found there were no Levites there. This caused great concern with Ezra. He couldn't possibly have returned without Levites. He must have Levites. We shall see the reason for that in a moment. And so they waited for a little longer while a deputation was sent to a Levitical colony of Jewry in exile, and uh, quite a large number of Levites did at last return uh, with them. Then they fasted. They spent quite a few days at the uh, river, as far as we know, it was the canal, uh, somewhere near Babylon, uh, Babylon region, and there, besides that, they spent a while fasting and seeking the Lord in prayer, finding out his mind, humbling themselves before him, because they had a long, arduous journey. They began in spring, which would have been quite bearable, but they had four months' trek across the very hot desert. And although they took a route which would avoid the worst parts of the desert, yet most of them would have probably had to have gone by foot, and uh, it was a, a pretty um, a difficult type of journey, and there was the possibility of marauding bands and much else. Uh, on the way. At last they started out, they took four months surviving, they arrived in the heat of the summer, the mid midsummer, uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, they, they took all the silver and the gold, they weighed it before they took it, and then they weighed it in, in the house of God. That has also a lesson for us. They weighed it in. Twice it was weighed. Before uh, they started out on the journey, and then when they got there, it was weighed in, in the house of God. One by one, each piece was weighed. And then recorded. Each piece was recorded. Uh, that's also uh, something that we must look at. And so that really covers these two chapters, 7 and 8. Now what are the lessons that we can draw from this? We, we, are, we are speaking now of the recovery of inward character. And we must understand that if we stress the question of ground and the question of uh, the church and its absence absolutely uh, vital nature to all God's purpose, I mean it, it, it being the very heart of God's plan and economy, uh, we must never forget that deeper than the recovery of truth, there has got to be the recovery of an inward character. Uh, everything finally breaks up and disintegrates because of the lack of true spiritual character. Always. It is one thing to understand the truth and to be given to the truth, to see what God is after and to see what God is doing and to give ourselves to it. That's one tremendous thing. It is another thing to be for the Lord to be producing a moral character in us, a, a spiritual character, a Christ-like character. Therefore, when we come to this, we are coming to something which is essentially all to do with uh, the character, inward personal character. And of course, you know as well as I do, that everything in the end is coloured by the character of the people that constituted. The church should be just the reproduction of the character of Christ. That's all. It should just be simply that the world should be able to touch the Lord Jesus here on earth again in his people. That is the church. Uh, That's what we understand the scripture as the church. The body of our Lord Jesus. Uh, it is the Lord Jesus here on earth living again in his people in a corporate way, so that men and women on earth can touch him and know him again. 
But this is a question not just of truth, even in practice. It is a question of character. Now the first thing we find about true spiritual character is something I think that's going to surprise everyone. Uh, it is what I would call base, uh, or shall we put it this way, it issues from uh, the voluntary giving of oneself wholly to the Lord. Now, let us look <coughs> in uh, chapter 7. I want you to underline one or two things. Um, Chapter 7, first verse uh, 13. Now, listen to this. I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my realm that are minded of their own free will to go to Jerusalem, go with thee. Minded of their own free will. Then again, I want you to note verse 15 to carry the silver and the gold which the king and his counsellors have freely offered. Now this is the king and his counsellors that have freely offered. Then you note again in verse 16, And all the silver and the gold that thou shalt find in all the province of Babylon with the free will offering of the people and of the priests offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. Now, if you read through this letter, and you read through chapter 7, there's one thing that's going to hit you, and that is that it's all because there were those who were minded to go of their own free will to Jerusalem. Now, this is the heart of this question of remnant. It is the heart of this question of recovery. As far as spiritual character goes, it never comes. It never comes from high-bound duty. There, oh, if only we could understand this, there are some of us who grit our teeth and just go through with things in a sense of duty. There is no joy about us, there is no peace about us, there is no real service about us, there is no real worship about us. It's just that hard, inward gritting of the teeth, and you're going to go through with it, because it's the Lord's will for you. Grimly, grimly, it's a question of grim death, you know, you can see the clamped jaw spiritually in some of us as we sort of jut out our chin and we're going to go through this thing. Well, there's a sense in which we need determination and we need steadfastness. But you know, spiritual character never comes from such a spirit. Never comes from such a spirit. Never. That's why in such people, spiritual character is lacking. It's lacking, it's not there. Spiritual character comes from a person who's got through. I know that's a hackneyed phrase amongst us. But it's from a person who's got through on the deepest level. I mean this. You can't kid me. Pardon me speaking like this. But you can't kid me that, that, uh, that it's really victory to grit your teeth and go through with it because it's the will of God. As if the Lord wants that kind of reaction in his people. That's not victory. Victory, that you know all that is, that's an evidence of self. It's an unwilling self-life being dragged into the service of God, that's all. An unwilling self-life being dragged into the service of God. You and I should get to the Lord that that self-life be absolutely shattered. So that we can willingly give ourselves to the Lord. Spiritual character is produced by those who have a mind, a minded of their own free will to go to Jerusalem. Hmm? That's why in Nehemiah it says the joy of the Lord was their strength. Hmm? They got so through that they didn't care to do what happened to themselves. The joy of the Lord was their strength. See? They got through to such a place that what was joyful to the Lord was their joy. You see, you take a Sunday morning gathering and I see so many dear saints that are trying to praise the Lord. Um, well, um, the, whole, the whole point is simply this. It shouldn't be like that. It's only an evidence of a self-life. That's all. It's, it's only an evidence of a self-life. We have to praise the Lord. Just imagine it. I don't know what some of our parents or relatives or loved ones would think if we spoke to them like that. Well, I've got to love you, you know. I've just got to. Radical business it would be. How very 
grieving and injurious it would be to relationships if we all went down to each other saying, well, I, I've got to, you know, I've just got to, I like you, through gritted teeth, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what we do with the Lord, see? We speak to him through gritted teeth all the time, not through uh, a life that love, uh, 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 love for him, but through a kind of, well, we've got to do it. Now, this is just simply because there's a self-life in the back which has never been devastated, never been shattered yet. Um, it's there, it wants something, it wants to get something out, it's prepared to go the way of the Lord a certain way because it knows it's the only way, and it knows it's the only, in the end it's the only way of real joy and reward and increase. But it must have something for itself. And of course, going this way, there is nothing for itself. And therefore it moans and groans and cries, and, and it's the flying yard. So you see, straight away we come up against this, you see, this uh, inward and moral character I issues from voluntary giving of oneself. Uh, you will note if you read through this chapter that on one side you have the will of God and on the other side you have the willingness of the people. All the time our circus keeps on saying, what is the will of the Lord? What is the will of the Lord? Whatsoever the Lord commands you to do, do it, and so on, all the rest of it. Next, alongside it, he keeps on speaking of your free will, your free will. Well, you see, that's just it. That's just how the Lord would have us do things. He says if he wants you to do something, but he doesn't want you to grit your teeth and do it grimly. He wants you to, to so die on that spot that you do it joyfully. You see, when we can't praise the Lord and we can't express real worship, it's simply because what rejoices the Lord does not rejoice us. That's putting it mildly and simply. It just doesn't rejoice us. What the Lord finds really... Uh, rewarding and uh, delightful is something that we don't find rewarding and delightful. And therefore, when the Lord amongst us singing with joy, uh, we're there grimly. It's a question of free will. This is so in all, in all the church. Some people can't understand why we don't rebuke them. We don't rebuke them because they're not prepared to be rebuked. The principle. Uh, when we know someone is so given to the house of God uh, that they don't mind how you come down on them or what you say, then we do so. But we're, we're not here to be dictators and hammer down on people uh, who want to go this way or go that way or go the other way. You see, it's the whole point. It's the whole nature of this life. Uh, this question of fellowship. Everyone's free to do exactly what they want. Sometimes people get criticised because they won't do things without each other. But we don't blame anyone who doesn't want to do anything. They want to do that, they think they can do it, and they have got the Lord's mind. God bless them. Uh, but if we couldn't do that, some of us couldn't do it. Uh, we've been we've been led into a way in which we can't do that. Uh, we're we're bonded together in that in in that way. You see, uh, that's free will. It's not a dictatorship. It's not some iron fisted thing that comes down. It's a it's a thing that began with a voluntary giving of ourselves to the Lord and to one another. So you see, it is this free will business, as in a sense, that lies at the root of so much. Here is the Lord's sovereignty, here is the Lord's slavery, here is something that is just sheer bondage to the Lord. On the other side, it's something that you enter into freely of your own will. So we look at that. This produces character, there's no doubt about it. You take every single person that's doing something out of high-bound duty, and there's a sense of defeat about that life. You've got it. Is there a sense of meanness, a sense of poverty, a sense of uh, narrowness? You, you, you just feel it when you teach it. But you find everyone that has a real wealth, spiritual wealth, an enlargement, something about them, and you'll find every time there are people who are really serving the Lord. I mean, they're not finding it easy at times, but they are serving the Lord because they have willingly given themselves, and they're all to the Lord. To them, the whole question of all these things that worry so many of us, money and time and leisure and friendship and work and everything else, it's all the Lord's. And once you've settled that in one fell swoop, you're through one very big thing. Some of us, I'm afraid, just go through each one by digit and have a terrible time about it and go move very slowly. But it's much the best at the very beginning to settle the whole thing in one fell swoop and just hand it right over to the Lord and henceforth time met. Home, family, work, everything is the Lord. 
Then you'll find another thing mentioned in uh, chapter 8, um, and we're going to come back to the beginning of chapter 8, but in chapter 8, verses 21 to 23, is fasting. Now, you may be very surprised, but fasting is something that issues in spiritual character. I don't care what anyone says, you will never find spiritual character without fasting. No, I don't mean, of course, just uh, outward fasting or dieting, uh, and so on. Uh, but I mean this, that before they ever started on the journey back to the promised land, they fasted in order to seek the Lord diligently. Diligently. Now forget the abstinence from food as a thing and get to the point of their fasting. It was to give themselves without any worrying or distractions to the Lord. that they might diligently, diligently find his mind about the way ahead. This reveals something. You see, it reveals a dependence upon the Lord. You see, when a person's independent, they don't fast, good gracious me. There are thousands of others that have done the journey, evidently, I should imagine, uh, to Jerusalem for them. Find out what you've got to take, what kind of weather you're going to meet on the way, what might be the possible trouble. If the king's offered a whole detachment of troops to guard you, well, we're all right, we should be all right. We stand as much chance of getting to Jerusalem safely as the other caravans that go. That would be the normal person's reaction. Oh, we must have some prayer first. Before we go, we must ask the Lord's people too to pray for us on the way. Uh, but uh, that's as far as it goes. But you see, here, Ezra's attitude is one that reveals the most remarkable dependence upon the Lord. He is, he is broken of self-confidence, and he's broken of confidence in anything else. Do you know that Ezra refused uh, the, the king's protection? He said, no, 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 the Lord will take care of us. And like fools, they started out on a four-month journey across the desert that was beset with marauding bands of ours. And they were all known to have been exceedingly dangerous. But you see, they were all right. They started out on, in utter dependence upon the Lord. They had crossed their bridges long before they came to them in prayer. They had been down on their knees before the Lord in fasting. And they sought diligently the mind of God. They humbled themselves just in case there was anything uncovered. And some people are very silly. Very silly in this question of covering. Uh, they just think that if you, you're all right if you don't know what you're doing. But that's not so. Not so. You can uncover yourself. And consequently, they sought the Lord diligently before they took any steps. Was there anything anywhere that, that would give ground? That, that, might, that might mean the Lord couldn't protect them completely? So they, they diligently sought the Lord. What a, what a wonderful thing it is. An attitude of utter dependence upon the Lord. But more than that, uh, an attitude of utter obedience to the Lord. They weren't, it wasn't a sham. It wasn't one of these prayer meetings where you just pray that the Lord's will will be done, but it doesn't matter what, anyway what happens. It's already going to be done. Um, it wasn't that at all. It was a question that they were perfectly prepared to be flexible in the hands of the Lord and utterly obedient to the Lord. Now that is the Lordship of Christ in practice. You see, you call the Lord Lord. What does that mean? It means that you are dependent upon him. Huh? And you're not only dependent upon him, but you are you will be utterly obedient to him. It's no good you calling the Lord Lord unless you're prepared to be dependent. And prepared for the for the way the Lord will take you to make you dependent on him. You'll smash all self sufficiency and independence and spirit until we come, even a man like Ezra, with all his learning and cultural refinement, to absolutely gleam heavenly and holy upon the Lord. That's the Lordship of Christ. You see, it would have been so easy. So many other people have made the journey. It was a dangerous journey. So many other people have made the journey. Why not just make it? What's all, all the need for fasting for? What's all this need of seeking the Lord's mind? Ah, because these, these people are under the governance of the Lord in a personal, direct way. They dare take a step. Not if a thousand other comforts the Lord's children go that way. They dare take a step along that road unless they know the Lord directing them and governing them and leading them. This produces spiritual character. Spiritual character never comes from imitating. It comes from direct 
been directly under the Lordship of Christ. So you see characters produced there. I want you to notice again this little phrase that Ezra uses again and again. Look at chapter 7 and you'll find it three times. In verse 6, I'll just tell you the verses and then I'll tell you the phrase. Verse 6, verse 9 and verse 28 and then in chapter 8 in verse 22 and in verse 31. And there are one or two other instances of it too. The little phrase is the hand of the Lord upon me. Now what did he mean? Now to think of it. You know what he meant? He'd be speaking about the laying on of hands almost. The hand of the Lord upon me. What was this a picture of? It was a picture of the Lord, as it were, just guiding Israel in that company. And he attributed everything to the hand of the Lord upon him. Everything in these four chapters is attributed to the hand of the Lord upon him for good. This just means that your head is under his head. His hand was upon Israel. That's the meaning of the laying on of hands in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In essence, that your head comes absolutely under this head. The hands are water upon The practical expression of lordship. You remember that next when we have we have to fast before the Lord and to the Lord. It's not a question of, there's no merit in abstaining from food or anything like that. It's a question of being utterly before the Lord in order to find the Lord's mind because we're dependent upon him and we wish to be obedient to him. It produces spiritual character. This is a daily thing. It's a daily attitude, isn't it? To be leaning on the Lord. You don't have to spend your time in prayer. You can be in, a, in unceasing prayer. Prayer is dependence upon the Lord. That's all prayer is. A man who doesn't pray is a man who's not dependent. But a dependent person prays. They can't help it. You get to a state where you don't even know when you're praying or when you're not praying, quite frankly. You talk and talk and talk inside to the Lord referring and deferring to him all the time, which really, quite honestly, you don't know when you're praying or when you're not praying, except that when you get on your knees, you do know that's prayer. But when you pray with unceasing, it's an inward something or other that you can't explain, which is just continually talking to the Lord. When you see things, when you hear you referring to the Lord, saying, well, what do you think about that for? What do you think I should do that for? What about that? Uh, and so on. And uh, we can't, you can't explain it, but there you are. Then again, you find in chapter 8 also a register. And there are possibly something like about 3,000, if we were to count all the wives and children and others in this company, that returned with Ezra. Now, what does this reveal to us? It reveals another very important point I would like to make. Moral character is personal. It's personal. The greatest danger of an understanding of the church is that we hide in the, in the home, in the mess. Moral character, spiritual character, is personal. But, I want you to note, it is produced in and through a company. Always. True spiritual character is always produced in a company. Because it's tested there. It can't be tested anywhere else. You get these dear people that live absolutely alone and they seem very pious and godly and good, but they've never been put to the test. Ah, not of us could be godly and pious if we were all alone and didn't have any irritating people around us or very nice people around us who we just collide with all the time uh, and so on, or get on our nerves or all the rest of it. You know what happens. It'd be very, very nice if we had a little cottage somewhere down the country and uh, could spend our time reading and just looking at the lovely views and far away from all those irritating worrying things. We'd have ourselves to, of course, give us a lot of trouble. But most of us are so in love with ourselves that we can somehow get over that uh, problem on the whole. Um, but it's other people. It's other people. And believe me, if you start living with other Christians, or other Christians start living with you or working with you, um, it either, it, well, what you have comes down to being real or it goes. It always happens. Uh, some people get awfully shocked at what they find once they get on the inside of a company of the Lord's people. They think it's really terrible. They thought they were all so sweet and so on. But just get in inside and you begin to see. It all comes down to reality. Someone seems so gracious until you suddenly bump up against them the wrong way and then you suddenly see that it's, they're not so gracious. And so it goes on and all the rest of it. it it's this company. Now, you see, this... this being together, this group of people that returned, each of these returns, by the way, is a group of people. The last one was the smallest, but they were all a real group of people, a company of people. Now, 
you think of it, on that arduous journey, they had to live together, eat together, they had to do everything together. They had to be disciplined. This means there was a history of fellowship and of maintaining the unity. Now, spiritual character comes out of that. It comes out of fellowship. Many of us, as I believe I once a little while ago, we get hurt through fellowship. We become disappointed in fellowship. We become disillusioned in fellowship. And then we start to withdraw into our little shells. And, of course, the more we withdraw into our shells, the less we get hurt. That is true. Uh, we get so far into our shell in the end uh, that, uh, as I say, you, you, you don't get hurt that way. So much. But, but, you immediately become static spiritually. You die at the end. And of course, there are dozens of pillars of salt amongst the people of God. People who've just turned and died. Uh, that's all. You can't have much friendship with a pillar of salt. It's preserved. Embalmed. <laughs> and of course, amongst the Lord's people, you do get such cases of uh, preserved and embalmed uh, saints. Uh, we can't put our finger on what happened, but somewhere or other in their history, they just became disappointed with this illusion. They grew into a shell, and that was the end. Right? Of course, naturally, we can blame everyone else. But the whole point in this question of going on with the Lord is ourselves. I am absolutely convinced that you cannot be really uh, affected unless there's something inside which is, as it were, affectable. You know what I mean? Uh, most of us have got this something inside, you see, which, which reacts itself. And on the deeper levels of, of fellowship together, uh, those are the things that we have to get through on. If we don't get through, we die. Spiritually, and as I say, the Lord, the people littered with such uh, terrible tragedies, wrecks uh, that are all around static. Uh, they they just couldn't bear it anymore, and they drew into them from the shell. And this spiritual character is produced not by drawing out, but by getting through. Yeah. The only way you can get through, of course, is dying. The only thing that ever gets hurt in you and me is self. Nothing else. We needn't. We needn't try to think it's spiritual. Uh, self is the only thing that gets hurt. And if you and I will only take all the rebuffs and disappointments and disillusionments we find in one another, as a mean bunch, the Lord will bring us into a deeper experience with God. We shall go on. And we shall blossom and flourish uh, spiritually. And a spiritual character will come. We shall be able to help others. Well, it's there. It's a vital factor in producing character. And then again, and I'm going to pass this over rather swiftly, in chapter 8, 15, 20, you also find Levites as well mentioned here. Ezra refuses to move until there are Levites amongst them. Well, who do Levites speak of? They speak of those who are utterly given to the service of the Lord. Utterly. Absolutely utterly. See, they have no inheritance in the land, nothing. Uh, they, they are just wholly given to the Lord. That's interesting, isn't it? Spiritual character is just that. Those whose aim and life is the service of the Lord, uh, his, his interest is public. And then I want also you to note silver and gold. Now this is most interesting. When we come to this question of silver and gold in chapter 8, 24 to 34, to the end of chapter 8, we come to a most interesting thing. Uh, you see, it, this silver and gold is mentioned in the first return, but it's not emphasised. Here it's absolutely emphasized. We're not only given all the number, which we were in the first, but we're given the weight and much else. And another interesting thing, silver precedes gold in every instance in these four chapters. Now isn't that an interesting thing? Because oh, I think nearly all of us know that silver in the Bible speaks always of redemption or justification. Righteousness imputed. That is, the Lord Jesus given to us as a gift, as our righteousness before God. Now, everywhere in the Bible, silver speaks of righteousness like that. Justification. Being justified freely as a gift of God. We can't do anything for it. We can't uh, earn it. We can't work it or anything else. It's given to us. And this silver, wherever you find it in the Bible, silver always stands for Christ for us. Christ for us. Redemption. Redemption or 
justification. But gold never speaks of that. Gold in the scripture always speaks of divine character. Always. Or of sanctification. Or let me put it another way. Christ in us. Silver speaks of righteousness imputed. But gold speaks of righteousness imparted. Now silver precedes the gold. Isn't that interesting? And this, I believe, frankly, is the key to moral character. Many of us get into a mess because we so want to see ourselves changed. We want to see the Lord produced in us. We put the gold before the silver. But the Lord would have us first absolutely rooted in the fact that Christ is our righteousness, that we are abject we've got to get that clear. And the Lord will take great pains to show us ourselves and make us very miserable and leave us, as it were, to stew in the, in the misery until we come to the place that there is absolutely no righteousness in our flesh whatsoever. And then, of course, we come to the wonderful fact that the Lord never expected to find any in our flesh anyway. And then that brings release. Of course, I can say it, and some of you will still be worrying tonight about this very thing. Until you see it, you'll never get the peace that comes with it. Yet it's part of your, of your and my salvation. You see, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. This is silver. Now this silver was weighed see, and recorded. It is the basis of everything else that God does. This silver. But once that is in its place and rightly understood and laid hold of, then God starts to do the other one. And that is to produce a righteousness in us by his Holy Spirit. As soon as we get our eyes on that, we shall be lost. Well, we have to keep our eyes on the silver. God works the gold. You keep your eyes on the silver, and God will see that the gold increases. You must keep your eyes on the thing that's first. Christ for us. God will do the rest with Christ in us. But these two things are absolutely together, absolutely together. Spiritual character is based in Christ for us and produced by Christ in us. Remember that. You'll never have any spiritual character while you're waiting for it to be in you. You must understand it first that Christ is the spiritual character for us. For you. I don't know. You see, the whole point is so spiritually rational. God deals with us so severely and so devastatingly that unless we know what it is to have the Lord Jesus as our righteousness before God, we will let go in despair. In absolute despair, we shall let go. And then we shall, we shall be lost in the blackness of darkness. We must take hold of that fact, Christ for us, our righteousness. Our acceptance with God, our salvation, then God starts to work in us when we take hold. As soon as I take my eyes off and on the gold, the gold stops. As soon as I put my eyes on the silver, God starts to produce the gold. Isn't that strange? But it's absolutely true. You keep on looking, saying, Now, is there anything more of the Lord Jesus in me? I wonder. Is there anything more of the Lord Jesus in me? And the more you look, the more miserable you become, the more despondent you become, and the work of the Holy Spirit starts to slow down until it stops. The more you take hold of the Lord Jesus and say, Christ is my righteousness before God, the more the Holy Spirit takes hold of the Lord Jesus in you and produces the spiritual character. That's why the people that you think are most like the Lord, when you talk with them, if they were ready to talk with you openly, you would find them most conscious of violence and sin. It's a strange thing. I often meet people who are so like the Lord, and I think, surely they must be conscious of it. They must be conscious. He breathes around. It sort of hits you as you come anywhere near them there. They really, genuine, they're really there's something on the Lord there. They must know it. They walk in it all day. I feel it when I touch them. So they must know it. But when I speak with them, they are, oh, they really have a genuine opinion of themselves, which is terrible. Well, how have they got through? Because of Christ for them. That is their theme. Christ for them. Well, they are something we have to remember and so very very simply 
the matter of the last two chapters it can be more simply dealt with because it's one matter. The whole last two chapters deal with this one matter of mixed marriage. Uh, it, it's interesting, uh, this. By the way, that silver and gold is weighed and recorded in the house of God. Just mark that, will you? Everything that's of the Lord Jesus is, is for the house of God. It's weighed and recorded. Now, this last we find conditions found on arrival. The last two chapters, poor Ezra, when he got that, what did he find? He found a terrible state of affairs. Come back to what he thought was wonderful, and when he got there, he found the whole thing was in decay. Uh, they came to him, and look at the list they gave him. It's always funny. Perizzites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Moabites, Ammonites, Egyptians. And now, if you look back through that list, you'll find you go right back to Abraham. And you find that all the people that have ever troubled the work of God are there. And now, after the captivity, after all that, we now find some of them that have turned their back on the old line again. And what have they done? They've taken wives of these very people. And old troubles all starting up again. Well, 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 what do we learn here? Well, spiritually, this is what we learn. This mixed marriage is the heart of spiritual character, an understanding of it. It's the heart of spiritual character. Because, you see, it's always the curse in God's work. I'm talking spiritually now. I'm not just talking about it physically. I'm talking about it spiritually. It's a curse in God's work. What do we mean by mixed marriage spiritually? We mean that subtle compromise. That mixture, whatever it is, awful mixture that in the New Testament is called adultery. Spiritual fornication and adultery. That awful playing with this world. Alliances with this world. Well, of course, we don't have to go to the picture or smoke or drink or the rest, you know, to, to, to have alliances with this world. They can be in the prayer gap. They can be there. Alliances. Now, why marriage? Because here we're touching the deepest part of our beings naturally. Our affections, our feelings, our desires. And it is always those deep, mysterious things in us that are unyielding when it comes to the Lord. Oh, many of us will get to on many other things, money, time, much else, but it's those deep, deep things to do with our affections, to do with our feelings, to do with our desires, that we, we cannot yield, we will not yield. And you know, they'll go along with it, the Lord. You see, these people have come back. Well, it's a history of sacrifice. They'd come back. And they not only come back, but they built the house. They were there. They wanted to go the way of the Lord. They were prepared to go a long way with the Lord. They were on the right ground. But they brought their alliances with them. See? Now that speaks to a lot of us. We'll go a long way with the Lord, but, but, but. There are those deep, deep, deep things that we don't talk about, in which we are compromised, in which we're mixed, impure, Something that it can only be described as the spirit of this world is there. Friendship. And until that thing is dealt with, there can be no real spiritual character. Spiritual character comes from that that kind of thing being dealt with on the deepest level. That's why the Lord is giving some of us such a terrible time. Because it's on that deepest level that the Lord would get us through. He knows there's no good getting us through on that level, on that level, on that level, and leaving that level. He gets, wants to get us through on the deepest level of all. Our affections, our feelings, our desires, these deep things. And I say, we, 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 can, we, can, we can be free. We needn't go to places. We needn't do certain things. We needn't read certain things. But oh, there might be all kinds of things. And it is those things that give rise to jealousy and strife and backbiting and faction and backjack. It all comes usually from something that's unyielded deep down in a person. 
And it's usually covetousness. Something that desires, something that feels, something that wants. Those are the things at the bottom of it. No one but dear old Nehemiah, when we come to him, we shall find Jesus. He lifted up his skirts and he chased that man out of the house of the Lord. And that man was uh, the last, almost the last part of the Old Testament history. Dear, a godly man chasing another man out of the house of God. But the whole point was Nehemiah wasn't going to leave one single impure association. Uh, in, in the house of the Lord. So you see, here you've got to the heart of it. Here you've got to the very heart of it. You, can only, you and I, we can only ask ourselves a question. Is there anything that corresponds to such a mixture in us? Really, deep down within us, is there such a thing that corresponds to such a mixture? Something that is compromised, something just somehow or other, we're not through on. There. That's the thing, you see, you've got, you've got the ground, you've got the foundation, you've got the ground, you've got the foundation, you've got the people. You have the cross working in some measure anyway, you've got the house built. But Ezra, God uses Ezra to deal with inward character. And you know, when you read these two chapters, you can't be impressed by this man, Ezra. I want to end there. His humility, his meekness, this man's humility and weakness. He's not the man with the big stick, you know, wielding it. Oh, this terrible idea of authority. This terrible idea of authority. This unapproachable and heavy-handed and so on. You see, this man, how does he react to this thing? Does he get up into the pulpit and sort of look at them with fiery eye and sort of, um, well, no. His first reaction is the most strange reaction to us. Here's a dignified, refined, cultured man holding a high position in the Persian government of all things. And what does he do? Focal point of God's purpose at this present point. He tears his garments. He pulls out his hair, pulls out his beard. What a disheveled sight that man must have been. And then it says he just simply went before the Lord and stayed there for a day. He, he was, it says he's appalled. He sat down confounded. The revised standard version says appalled. He was so overcome. Now, this is the question I want to ask. Are you so identified with the purposes, with the purpose of God and the interests of God that when such a thing at this point, the master tape was reversed, and about one minute of the message is lost. It is simply the reaction of a humble and meek man. Man, any, any other kind of man would have battered all their heads together somehow, at least in preaching. Uh, he would have somehow or other told them all off. But this was a man who had that interest of, heart, of, of God at heart. And he is a broken man because of something in which he actually had no part whatsoever. Now, if he had a father wife, it would have made all the difference. I would have expected him to have sat down and wept and cried. But he hadn't. And therefore, he was in the position where he could have gone and told the rest. But you don't take any of that in his prayer. His prayer is our guilt, our sin, our exceeding great wickedness. It's all himself, as if he is the wickedest and vilest sinner that ever walked in the house of God. You see? Now, it was this spirit of travel. And his prayer is one of the loveliest in the Bible. Uh, it says he knelt, which is a very unusual thing uh, for any Jew to do. They stood all day. He knelt. He was in such, a, such grief that he knelt before the Lord. What you, I want you just to note is that that man's travail was the thing that without a word being said brought everyone together. 
No round table conference. No slanging match. No trying to put something over to the mess, really. Because of what happened inside the leader, the immediate effect upon those that were so wrong was that they came weeping. Now this is the heart of spiritual character in leadership. I think we all fall short of it. Those of us with any leadership watch where we fall dismally short. But it's the heart of it. But you don't just throw your weight around, nor do you take that sort of assertive, proud attitude that uh, you can't tell me anything. This was a spirit that was so utterly real and genuine before the Lord that it had an influence immediately. This was one of the greatest days in the, in the history of the people of God. Never before did they come and say, we will put away our wives. It was the severest thing. You know, that day, Little children were torn away from their fathers, never to see them again. Wives were turned out and sent back to their own countries, never to see their husbands again. It was a terrible day. There were 113 wives, by right, by the list at the end, turned out of house and home and everything. With their little ones, some of them. Severe measures, terrible measures, terrible measures. But you see, again, it was free will. Ezra didn't batter them into it. His attitude reacted in them. It threw out a reaction. And they came and they said to themselves, what shall we do? We will. We're with you. You do it. Then, when they said you do it, Ezra was fine. You see? Now, that's just not like us. Because if someone does that and they come to us and they say, look here, we've all been very wrong. We can see by what we've done to you that we could cause you. We've been really wrong in this. We're very sorry. Well, of course, you usually the right thing to do, isn't it? Just say, oh, it's all right, so I don't worry, don't worry. It's caused a lot of grief, but I'm sure the Lord will understand. I understand that. No, Ezra said straight away, once they came to him, he said, no, you must put away your wife straight away. There's no way through it, and you've done that. And they did it. Well, that was a terrible day, but it was the greatest day in the history of God's people. Never before had there been such willingness. Not like that. That was a great day. I believe Ezra was a great man. That's why. That man had spiritual character. And it's spiritual character, in the end, which tells for God. Whether it is in the company, or whether it is in leadership, wherever it is, whatever form of ministry or responsibility we have, it is our spiritual inward character that in the end will give the character to everything else that we say and do in the finish and will be our abiding influence after we have left the earth. That will be the thing, to be what we were in. Well, let's remember that together. It's severe, it's tremendous, it's deep, but it's, it's, it's part of this recovery. You've got the house recovered, you've got truth recovered, but you've got to have character recovered too. It's no good having one without the other. You've got to have them both. So here's the second great movement of the return. A character is restored, covered and restored, not only in the people, but in the leadership. May the Lord help us both do it.